You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we uh, take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, if you're newer to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rob last week, where we discussed the characteristics of positive and negative skew strategies and why mixing them together may be beneficial, as well as the value of big research teams and whether there is a kind of maybe overthinking the research uh, in these large teams when it comes to systematic investment approach, the one we all love, uh, namely trend following. Now, also, if you missed our Wednesday episodes in the Global Macro Series, I would highly recommend that you go and have a listen after you've done listening to Rich and me today. This week, uh, it was with the former editor of the Financial Times Alphaville blog, Isabella Kaminska, and she was very interesting in her assessment of the current events. Rich, always great to be um, back with you. How are things down under, so to speak? Has all the flooding stopped, I hope? Fortunately, all of the flooding stopped, but uh, winter is coming. There's a bit of a chill in the air now, and we're we're slowly getting into hibernation mode. But uh, whilst we might be getting colder, trend following is hot at the moment. So enjoying the trend following regime we've got at the moment. I, when you said winter is coming, I was thinking you must be talking about the equity markets or the bond markets. But, uh, <laughs> Could be. But there we are. There we are. Now, we are recording a day early today because tomorrow I'm going to focus on one thing only and then is celebrating my daughter's 18th birthday. Um, so I didn't have time to do kind of a detailed market summary. But since it's been a big week for people who watch uh, the Fed and other central banks, I think the topic of bonds is worth spending a little bit of time on. But before I do that, maybe we should start where the week actually started, which is Monday. And on Monday, at least here in Europe, we had a quote-unquote flash crash Monday morning European time. And uh, apparently this was caused by a Citibank trader in London. Now, why would that be relevant to even mention on our show? Well, because I've already seen articles with headlines like, did CTAs exacerbate the flash crash? Question mark. And apparently firms like Mirabeau and C here in Switzerland, where there was a director called John Plassard, he told Bloomberg, it shows that market is always vulnerable to human error and that algorithms and various CTAs are far too present in the markets. I'm not surprised by these headlines, but I feel pretty confident in saying that CTAs had nothing to do with this. And I did see that our friends at TransTrend was out rebuffing this unsubstantiated statement by saying that they actually bought $11 million worth of shares during that three-minute sell-off. So anyway, some things never change, and I guess uh, the blaming CTAs is one of those things. But... Before we turn to the Federal Reserve, which obviously was uh, in focus this week, let me just mention that the Bank of England raised its rates uh, yesterday by 25 basis points to 1%. 
with some members wanting to go even more aggressive with a 50 basis points rise. And you could ask why they only did 25 basis points, um, as the BOE expects UK inflation to rise to roughly 10% this year as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war and lockdowns in China. But let's look at what happened on the other side of the Atlantic. Of course, we probably all know that we got a 50 basis points hike in rates this week from the Fed. But I want to talk about something different when it comes to the Fed and other central banks. Now, interestingly, the Fed uh, in the post-Great Financial Crisis and central banks around the world has had all these kind of stress tests of the financial system that they're putting the financial institutions through from time to time to see how sound they are. Throughout the last 15 years or so, you know, they are asking the questions, what happens if credit widens out, for example, or if there's another problem in the system? And every scenario that central banks want to stress test the banks for and the financial system as a whole are all sorts of scenarios other than one thing, and that is they're not stress testing the central banks themselves. What if they screw it all up? So I think we need to ask ourselves, kind of like uh, our own little stress test, what if the central bank screws up and interest rate goes vertical? Because that's kind of exactly what's happening right now. So to all of the major central banks and to their stress test teams, I would say you never stress tested yourself throughout all of these years, and maybe you should because the stress test that we've seen in the system so far, you know, may not actually include credit. It may not be induced by credit. What if it's interest rates? What if that's going to be the cause? And maybe it's relevant to think that way because we know that they are far behind the curve. And the concern I have is when you look at the bond market having its worst start to the year since 1788. Yes, you heard me right. For the past 200 years, the global index of 10-year bonds has never done anything remotely close to this. And those who are regular listeners have heard me say before, we need to start being open to the markets doing things that we could never imagine. And I think this is just another example of this because the financial system is not designed for bond market moves like this. And by the way, the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Index, which started in 1990, it does cover 28,000 bonds and 60 plus trillion dollars in assets. So it's not a small little index. So I think we need to really keep an eye out for indicators of major problems. And the question is, what could that be? Well, maybe it's the yen that is suddenly having a big problem because of interest rates. Maybe it's the euro. Could be another one having problems if interest rates uh, goes up rapidly because credit is becoming an issue and because the countries within the euro are just too different to having the same currency and the world of high, in a world of high inflation and weak central banks. I really don't know, but it concerns me. So, you know, maybe if... 12 months ago, you would have said, well, Facebook could lose 25% of its value overnight, or the global bond market index could lose 11% in just four months. You would have said, no, impossible. That's never going to happen. And you would have heard lots of experts say that bank stocks are down because of low interest rates. And when rates start to go up again, you really need to be long banks. But the large bank stock index in the US is down 23% in the last three months. And the stocks bank index here in Europe is down 25% in the last three months, despite interest rates going up. 
All I'm just saying is something interesting is going on at the moment. And of course, let's not forget that there were some experts saying a few years ago that trend followers could not make money, certainly not very much money, when interest rates would start to go up. So Rich, that was a long-winded introduction, but it's just something that I think is interesting. I'm not sure that there's enough people talking about it. Um, we know that bonds are, there are many more bonds in the markets than there are stocks. So when things like that happening in, in that part of the financial system, and maybe it's because I'm biased having started out as a government bond trader myself, I I just get a little bit more concerned than whether an overvalued tech stock drops 50% on a bad earnings report. What about you? Yeah, well, I, I think this regime, the speed of this regime and what it's doing is is surprising a lot of people. So over here in Australia, on uh, on Tuesday, the Reserve Bank over here lifted interest rates by 25 basis points. But what's interesting is that the Reserve Bank's forward estimates um, are changing almost daily. So three months ago, they estimated that inflation would be 3.5% it's now been adjusted to 5.5%. So that's quite a big adjustment. And their their GDP estimates um, three months ago was a, a GDP of growth of about 5 five or so percent uh, for next year, but now it's been adjusted down to 3%. So, you know, with all of the boffins um, sitting in the Reserve Bank, they tend to be significantly re-evaluating and changing their forward estimates. And um, I think the speed of this regime and this um, this very unusual regime we're entering, which you know is fairly infrequent, we haven't seen it much before in the past, but um, it's catching a lot of people unawares. But you know, one of the bigger beneficiaries, biggest beneficiaries, are, are the trend following folk because this is a a regime where uh, you know I notice that um, the monthly. Um, Returns are coming in for the funds up to April, and a large majority of them are producing returns in four months that have exceeded their best returns over 12 months. So we're in a stellar, stellar regime at the moment for trend following, and uh, you know, particularly in the currencies and in the commodities. But and also this this very interesting move in currencies, which um, uh, has been a feature of your podcast over the last few weeks with Alan and yourself, uh, we're seeing this disconnect in the currencies where we're, we're getting these very good trends in the yen pairs, in the pound, in the euro, in the um, in the Canadian dollar. Um, you know, I'm seeing it right across my portfolio, uh, magnificent trends in the currencies. Um, as well as these very good trends in the commodities. And the particular one of focus at the moment is nat gas, which is, um, you know, having a very good um, return in the sun. But, um, it, yeah, it's a very interesting regime, Niels, and uh, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that it continues for us, but um, it's certainly delivering. Yeah, it sounds like the battleship is doing well uh, now that it's out of its dock and out uh, floating again at full steam, which is great to hear. And I guess you are, if I'm, if my memory serves me right. I mean, you are more focused on currencies, as I, if I recall, right? Yeah. So, so uh, most most of my portfolio, I, I have a dominant currency position in my portfolios: uh, commodities, currencies, um, small bit of equities. But um, yeah, I, I tend actually not to. Um, uh, have exposure in bonds. So um, th that's one wary of weakness in, in my portfolio, but it's just the limited range of bonds and, and that we have in our CFD products that sort of limit that possibility. 
Yeah, no, it makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, and as you said, I mean, uh, obviously the April numbers, we talked a little bit about them last week. They were coming in strong. And my guess is that actually for the most part, uh, obviously it's uh, the week is not quite finished yet, but just looking at what happened so far this week, despite a little bit of a reversal Thursday to, uh, uh, you know, on the back of, um, or was it Wednesday? Oh, it must have been Wednesday. So Wednesday, we had a bit of a reversal in many trends because of the FOMC where they latched on to the point that he said, oh, we're not going to raise by 75 basis points. And everybody thought, yoo-hoo, this is great. And then Thursday, it all came crashing back into the back <laughs> to the long trends or long-term trends. And and today, who, who knows what's going to happen today. But it, it, overall, it just seems like it's been another um probably positive week for for those following uh, those trends that you mentioned and it just seems to me even if i think back on of of all the decades that i've been watching these markets and as a trend follower it seems like like there's a lot of breath in the portfolio there seems like there's a nice rotation between leadership in terms of where performance is coming from one one month it's one sector like last month it was currencies the month before it was energies and but a, and then you had grains and all of that so it certainly feels different to what we've seen for for quite a while, and as you said, we'll see how long uh, it lasts. And of course, there will be there will be some of this performance being given up um, at some point, and and that's exactly how it should be. Now. We've got uh, some great topics, uh, as usual, uh, when you're on. We've got some great topics, but we have one question and we have one comment. Um, And I'm going to start by the comment because I do think it's fair to, um, because we've been discussing this um, targeting of, well, we call it volatility targeting, but in reality, I think there is, in truth, different ways of looking at whether it's actually targeting a level of volatility, whether it's targeting a risk level, whether it's just having dynamic position sizes. And as as listeners know, there are people in the for uh, camp and there are people in the against camp who, uh, who are here. And um, we get comments from time to time. We get lots of questions about it. Um, but I got an interesting comment, a long one. So I have to be really um, on my A game here, reading reading it without making too many mistakes. Um, but it was a comment made by someone following our last conversation, Rich, and therefore I think it's perfectly fair that I read it, and then you can decide how much you want to uh, respond or not respond to it. But it's from a guy called Jack, and Jack writes, Thank you for a terrific podcast. I have been a listener for years and thoroughly enjoy the podcast. Your recent thoughts on the macro backdrop and the regime transition we're seeing is definitely something I too believe in. It is very compelling for macro in these years ahead. I've been an institutional CTA trader for more than a decade and run a substantial futures program. As much as I love the podcast, my bugbear is with the old school one entry, one stop crowd. I think over the years yourself have come around to appreciating the more sophisticated, in quotation, thinking. What baffles me is how misunderstood continuous brackets and vol targeting systems are. That became evident in your latest podcast uh, with the man down under. That is you, Rich. I don't have any other men down under. (laughs) While the old and simple approach has some quote-unquote dumb benefits with regards to skew, uh, they are fundamentally inferior. I think you pointed out that some of the appeal stems from 
pre-technology days, which I too agree with. There is another element that, uh, and that is from the mental shortcut angle. Um, by managing positions on a per-trade basis, it is immediately intuitive for a human to see discrete trade PNL, how many ATRs are made, where the stop is, etc. That makes it tangible and fun for metrics such as hit ratio, ATRs per trade, etc. This also makes it easy to implement a system uh, in a vendor product, which again is trade-based and binary. And again, it gives you a shortcut and a fairly good approximation to the desired long straddle payoff. Other shortcuts are the open trade equity versus closed uh, equity paradigm, a hard and discretionary uh, for some approach um, to when to increase your capital. Another major uh, suboptimal part of the approach I hear is the equal risk to each trade and each market. It does sound to me like if you have 15 fixed income markets and five energy markets, each trade is allowed to lose, uh, for example, 15 basis points. Uh, not taking into account the number of actual independent bets made uh, might give spurious skew benefits, but a dynamic system will again be allowed to take larger positions due to its consideration for portfolio gearing and construction. Yeah. However, continuous systems with some kind of vol targeting um, are superior in perhaps every metric except skew, although this is not necessarily the case depending on your response function. There is a misconception about compounding. Higher sharp means that you can, in Kelly terms, bet more and achieve optimal compounding. And the fact that vol targeting reduce your upside. Continuous dynamic systems will, for instance, deploy open trade equity immediately uh, on a systematic interval, and hence also increase positions. As you mentioned, volatility can also decrease after a trend has started, allowing dynamic systems to substantially increase their positions. A lot of these elements require bespoke programming and implementing, and hence is not suitable using a vendor system or Excel spreadsheet. In the turtle way, Rob Carver seemed to have spoken to you uh, and to your other guest about this, but... Um, <laughs> but they simply don't understand the dy dynamics uh, or haven't read his book. While the simple approach also clearly works, it is curious how those practitioners dismiss and don't even try to understand the slightly more involved approach. The larger managers might have been successful in the AUM game due to some deliberate appeasement of investors, though through sharp uh, engineering, but mostly they have been successful due to solid performance in lean years as well as banner years, i.e. they generate better compound overall. While I don't agree with introducing lots of convergent strategies, purely divergent strategies in a continuous dynamic implementation outperforms the one entry, one stop on a compounding as well as sharp. Now, fair enough, and I appreciate the comments, Jack. They're very thorough. Um and of course, um, I put this question to you, uh, Rich, but of course the comment is really, you know, could be Jerry, um, could be Moritz for that matter. Uh, you know, you adopt a certain way and, and hear someone rebutting and saying, actually, it's fine to implement that. There's some benefits from implementation, but maybe it's a step too far to say that it is a better approach than a more dynamic approach. Let's call it that. Yeah, look. What are your... Uh, my, my thoughts are this. Um, 
He obviously, Jack obviously has a very strong opinion regarding his process. I've got a pretty strong opinion regarding my process. So in this trend-following world we exist in, there's, uh, we're not all the same breed. Um, there is, is room to move. And um, so in, in my opinion, uh, in my trend-following world, I lie on one side of the spectrum, and I'd say Jack lies on the other side of the spectrum. So when we talk about what is a spectrum, we're talking about a spectrum of what I regard as divergence towards convergence. So at one extreme, I'm talking about those traders who focus on tail events. In fact, they're, they're myopic to the extent that they disregard any other form of trend signal, and they're only interested in trends of magnitude, um, trends of significant mag magnitude, outliers. So that's one extreme, and that's the side that I um, predate on. That's the edge that I predate on. Then as we move towards more accepting more convergence into our strategy, we move towards um, a belief that um, we can obtain information from historical data that can improve our system. Now, what I mean there is that because I'm focused on these tail events, these outliers, which are anomalies, as far as my definition goes, um, they are... Um, it's so few in, in number, but their magnitude is so extreme, but their form is extremely various. We get large exponential rising trends. We can get outliers of, of almost a, a, an approximate regression line for many years. Um, we get many various forms of different form of outlier. So because of the different forms of outlier, um, in this um, exotic region I'm focused on, which is this, this tail region of returns, um, I need very simple systems. Furthermore, I can't get any sample size from those outliers um, to um, generate any confidence in applying dynamic position sizing once I'm on board those outliers. So what I'm saying is that up to the point of a trade entry, so when when I enter a trade, I'm entering a trade because my my signal tells me that this is a possible trend. However, you know, 95% of those signals are invalid signals in reality, in hindsight, because it's really only 5% of those signals that give me my bread and butter. They're the ones, they're these outliers that um, contribute to my wealth over the long term. That 95% um, is is you know, trending components of mean reverting signals, noise, all of these different um, different signals that are not the prime signal that I'm targeting on. I'm targeting on this outlier. Um, I can't use any statistical way of getting confidence in once I'm on board these outliers, do I, if volatility increases, do I decrease my position size during the course of that event between entry and exit? Or if volatility decreases, do I increase my position size? Because in my mind, all that does is it introduces trading costs, more and more trading costs um, into something that I'm skeptical about that, that there is any validity in what history has taught us about those trends. So because these outliers are these anomalies and they're unusual, they're exotic, 
Um, I don't believe that once I've entered a trade, I can make any assessment um, in terms of how to adjust my position size over the course of that event. I don't know what's going to happen at any minute of the time. All I know is that I've got a very simple system that allows for many various types of different exotic form. Um, if I had more complex systems, that would restrict my ability to capture, uh, to have um, degrees of freedom to capture many different possible forms. But with the simple systems I deploy um, and my, my, my technique of on entry, that's it. I take the bet and I leave it until my system tells me to exit. That is the simplest form of system for me um, in this exotic land of outliers where um, I don't think we can get any conclusions regarding how best to treat those outliers. Now, for Jack, if he is, for instance, predating on a different form of signal to what I'm sig uh, uh, targeting, I'm targeting these outliers, Jack might be targeting, uh, you know, trending components of mean reverting cycles. He might be targeting counter-trend components, what ARD classifies counter-trend. Um, he might be, con uh, he might be targeting many different various forms of, of, of trend that I'm not even focusing on. And in that regime, as you trend towards convergence or you trend towards equilibrium, as opposed to trending towards transition, as you're trending towards equilibrium, you can embrace things that use history as a basis to um, give you confidence in your signal. So in convergence systems, where we, we know that price is going to be oscillating about an equilibrium, we can be much more exact in how we target that particular signal. In outliers, we can't be exact in any way, shape or form because they're anomalies. But when there's a predictable condition or a predictable oscillation, we can be much more exact and we can make conclusions regarding dynamic position sizing or continuous signals that, that means that we invest more in a, in a trade as our signal gets stronger. Now, you know, continuous um, signals such as Rob Carver does or the dynamic position size um, as, as volatility targeting um, does are all sort of um, between entry and exit making some form of, of assessment regarding this is what volatility is doing, therefore this is how I've got to manage my position size in accordance with that volatility. Now what I'm saying is that out in these outliers, yes, they're volatile, but I don't know the direction of that volatility. I don't know if it's going to be up or it's going to be down. So because I take a much more simplistic view, in Jack's terms, a dumb view, what that does is it it, it doesn't introduce all of the the baggage associated with continuously adjusting your position size. Because every time you adjust your position size, you're introducing brokerage costs into your P&L. You're introducing slippage into your P&L. You're introducing the possibility of error into your P&L. So, um, yes, it might be sound superior because it is a more advanced and more difficult form of calculating on the fly. But I mean, you know, we, we don't really trade with Excel spreadsheets. I don't know who does. I trade with algorithms and it's very easy to do continuous signals or, or um, volatility targeting in my algorithms if I chose to do so. But in doing so, I'm adding more complexity into a system that I am deliberately trying to reduce complexity because I'm in an environment of complexity in these tail regions where I need simple systems to handle that complexity. Um, 
if the environment becomes much more predictable, we can really start fine-tuning and optimizing our system to that degree of predictability. And I say, well, that doesn't fly in our world of tail events. So I, I, probably I'll leave it there, Niels, but that uh, it's no, just... No, that's fine. That's fine. I do want to be a little bit devil's advocate, not that I want to speak for Jack, but... But I do think we, we need to have kind of a, a fair discussion. And I do think that when you talk about it a little bit here, you, uh, you know, you're, you're saying, well, maybe he's looking for more convergent traits. I, I don't actually think that he is, Frank. From what I understand, I, I don't think he is. And I don't think you, I don't think we can say that one methodology has more or less evidence than another because it's the same data we're looking at, right? So we're no, looking but at this, the same data. Where, if, if you could imagine, Niels, what I'm saying is that this this method of continuous signaling, this method of dynamic position sizing is something that I believe has been introduced post-2000. Um, I think before that regime where things were simpler, there weren't computers around, as you say, um, we, we, there were these simple techniques involved. This, this complexity that's been added as an overlay into trend following is a post-2000 occurrence. But I'd also say that, that yeah. there has been a regime shift post-2000. Now, what yeah, I'm saying here is that that regime has been a suppressed volatility regime where you will find that dynamic position sizing, that um, continuous signaling will work better because convergence has worked better over that regime. I'm saying that I think the, that's future, a fair point. the future might not be the same. The future right. has got no. many more chances to be significantly different. Okay. Actually, I think that's a great point because I completely agree. This is something that requires more calculation power. So I agree. It's something that has been probably introduced in the last 20 years. Um, and I also agree, as everybody who listens to us every week will know, that I'm very much in the camp of saying, yeah, we've had some kind of carry regime the last 20 years. So there has maybe been fewer um, opportunities um, for trend followers. But I don't think that's the same to say that if we go back to the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s style markets, that by definition, these newer systems, these dynamic systems will make less money. Because, and here's my point, I'm sure that when they were developed, right, these systems were developed, as you say, early 2000s, right? So they didn't know that we're going to go for 15 years carry regime, right? They would have developed these systems based on the 70s and the 80s and the 90s data where, as you say, there weren't this stability. So they would have done something in their research to actually conclude that even in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you would have done better or at least equally good by having dynamic position sizing because they wouldn't have known about the future. Right, so just like we today, we say we don't know what the next twenty years are going to be like. Well, they wouldn't have known what in two thousand the next twenty years would have been. So I think that is something we have to accept. Even though I don't disagree with your when they were introduced and all of that, I do think that that we can't conclude that this was developed with some kind of hindsight that they didn't have. They they had no clue at the time that this was going to be the environment. They must have concluded this based on the more 
volatile market conditions we had prior to the 2000. Is that a fair point? All I'm saying is that I, I don't expect everybody to start adopting continuous or dynamic position sizing sure. from 2000 sure. on. There was a slow creep. And as, as this environment became less hospitable towards trend following, people started looking for different options. We saw David Harding start um, questioning trend following and start to increase sure. his allocation in other strategies. We saw um, a growth of, of, you know, we saw CTA replicators come out uh, that said that they could do trend following just like the classic <laughs> trend followers could do. We saw right. all of this growth of different forms of trend following being added as an overlay onto what I'm referring to as classic trend following. I, I know Rob Carver hates that word classic trend following because he doesn't know what it really no, means. It's, it's good. I, it's what I, it is. Well, yeah. I, I think uh, if anyone, I think we can attribute classic trend following to Mr. Jerry Parker and his disdain for this this creep in changing the trend following well, I, method towards introducing well, these more know, modern concepts. Sure, sure. But classic trend following actually predates the turtles, right? The turtles were taught in the mid-80s about price breakouts. Before that, you had people like Bill Drace, you, know, Drace, you had people like Keith Campbell, you had Bill Don doing pioneering work before there was a Richard Dennis to teach you how to do price breakouts. So I agree with you, breakouts you know, whether it's volatility or whether it's price breakout, that is the classic way of trend following. That is the US style of trend following. And then later on, the more continuous style came in the mid to late 80s from the European managers, namely AHL, uh, really was the uh, the pioneer in, in doing it that way. And of course, it doesn't really doesn't really matter whether you're doing classical trend following or, or a newer trend following. I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to do things that we think is the best um, based on the evidence we have. Um, so I don't, I don't think even Jack is kind of, he's not criticizing classical systems. He, I think he argues that maybe it's too strong to say that um, using some kind of dynamic element in your position sizing based on volatility or based on other things, that that is inferior to classic trend following. I think that's the point he's trying to make. And frankly, none of us knows what the future will hold in, in any event. So you could argue that you should do both because we don't, I mean, if you go down the trend, the classical trend for or the, the normal trend following philosophy is, you know, diversification, you could say, well, maybe you need to do both because we don't know. I don't think we can form an opinion because classic trend following is alive and well as we currently speak and has yeah. been for the last 40 years. And these, these, more modern methods are alive and well as well. I don't think exactly. there is a clear, um, you know, maybe, yes, there are smoother returns generated by the more modern type, but um, pound for pound, we're still delivering with classic trend following. So the verdict exactly. and is still out. The verdict is still out. So in 10 years' time, when people will be listening to you and me, Rich, they will have the same debate. The verdict is still out. <laughs> but no, but also you're right in saying that maybe, class, maybe the newer trend type strategies um, have delivered a smoother ride to some extent. But I, can, I, but I think, again, in fairness, we need to add during certain environments. It doesn't have to be necessarily smoother ride, right? But it has been in certain environments. Anyways. Look, uh, just actually a, a point that I forgot to mention. Um, with, with continuous signals. Now, th this is a little bugbear of mine personally. 
I've talked okay. before about how I don't like pyramiding into trades. In other words, I don't like increasing exposure to a single trajectory in a system. In other words, I don't like adding. So right. with a single system on entry, I don't like adding or subtracting trades um, during between entry and exit. Right. So that is what a continuous signal develops because a continuous signal tells you what the strength of the signal is. And based on that strength of the signal, it tells you what size of positioning you need to deploy. So, But classic trend does the same, Rich. Classic trend does the same. Whether you buy the 50, the 60, the 70 day breakout, it's the same thing. It's the same system. It's just a different look back period and it builds on your position. Well, no. So this is the difference. This is the difference. So oh, that's pyramiding. So I've talked about pyramiding or Yeah, that's continuing. what I mean. That's, I mean so that is a single yeah. trajectory. So if you imagine, um, when I talk about a system, a trend-following system, catching a trajectory, I'm talking about a particular segment of a market trend. It, it will specialize in that because it's a single system with its own in initial stop, its own trailing stop, its own look-back settings. So it captures this particular trajectory. So a continuous signal might vary the position size, of course, along that trajectory. Uh, a binary system like I'm talking about will keep that position size constant from e entry to exit. However, multiple systems in my world is not the same as continuous signals because my multiple systems are all uniquely configured, so they're not targeting the same trajectory. Does that make sense? So in other words, it I'm not sense, increasing or decreasing my exposure for a trajectory. I'm, I am applying different systems designed to target different trajectories of that market trend. But I do have to challenge you on this, or at least I have to clarify something from you. When you say, okay, so in my world, if you're using the same methodology, let's just say we're using a dungeon price breakout, and the only difference is the look-back period, to me... That is the same system, just with a slightly different parameter. Yeah, I agree, I but that's not, that's not what I do. So I use different look back and a different initial stop and a different trailing stop. That, therefore, uniquely configures each, each system to be unique. That's what I say is the way to do it. Yes, and that exactly, and the reason why I wanted to definitely point it out is this is where you actually are different from people like Jerry, right? Because... The turtle system is not doing that, right? It's just a look-back period yep. that's the difference. Yep. So very important point, and I wanted to pull that out of you so um, people understand. All right. Well extracted. <laughs> let's leave this uh, wonderful topic for now, and um, let's quickly do a quick question from uh, Peregrine, and then we'll dive into some of your topics as well. Uh, Paragon writes, I hope you're well. Thanks for releasing the latest episode. It's a great way to start off a Monday. Appreciate that, Peregrine. I have a question for your next show, which might be of interest. Do you spend time researching the structural reasons for trend-following success? You mentioned that currencies and sometimes single stocks, except for Jerry's picks, do not yield good results. Uh, I don't know if I say they don't do. I just say currencies haven't done for the last 10 or 15 years, not to say they won't. Anyway, back to the question. There might be fundamental reasons why trends don't happen, such as regulation, e.g. currency pegs, or demand characteristics. For example, biotech stocks can be very binary, for example, if their drug is approved or not. 
wouldn't it be useful to have a checklist for the markets you want to include in your system? Note that I'm not suggesting this in any way um, times in any way times the market, but rather filters out markets which are structurally unable to trend. I'm just going to do a quick comment on this, Rich. You can add whatever you want, but all I'm just saying, Peregrine, I think you're right that there probably are some markets that are not suited well for our kind of trend following. On the other hand, we don't want to try to be too clever and guess what the future will hold. So we can't really say which markets will do well and which markets will do poorly in the past. And that's why we just have a kind of diversified approach. But I do agree with you that, for example, you could say that when short-term interest rates were held at zero, you could probably guess that that was not going to be a trending market for a while. Some people probably took them out for a while until they started to seeing some kind of movement again. But all in all, I think that we try to stay away from being too clever in, our, in how we select uh, the markets. That would be my comment. Anything you want to add, Rich? I, I think he raises a very good point. So um, I, uh, when I look at markets to trade, I, I say... I, I always invest in liquid markets. So in my definition of what is a liquid market, I will exclude markets that have this structural um, element in them that prohibits them from acting like a liquid market. So a pegged currency, for instance. Also in my research, I've found that um, you know in the construction of indexes and ETFs, there is a different um, there is a different nature of trend created within those particular products than say single market instruments such as commodities, currencies, um, individual stocks. Um, these things have different characteristics, and so um, if I find these structural differences, um, such as the the long only bias in a, a, a you know an, an equity index, um, that therefore tells me to trade it a different way. But all other things, I trade the same way. Things where there is no structural difference, I will treat the same. But if they are structurally different, I'll treat them differently. And that's because I think in my definition of what constitutes great trending markets, um, I, I think that we want to trade markets with a propensity to deliver outliers. And therefore, um, I think, you know, if, if our choice is, do we invest in a company that's highly diversified or do we invest in a company that sells eggs? I'd say invest in a company that sells eggs because we in our portfolios are in the business of diversification, but we don't invest in products that offer diversification because we're looking for these outlier benefits. And what we do at our portfolio level is that the way we treat it at the portfolio level is to um, adopt diversification techniques that give us correlation benefits effectively. That that won't be the case if you're investing in a business that's already highly diversified or investing in an asset class that's highly diversified. That's why I tend to always focus towards unique propositions that are uncorrelated uh, that have the propensity to deliver these outliers. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you could say that that's probably why, to some extent, maybe people will feel that equity indices are not as great as single stocks because, again, an index is taking out some of that um, characteristic you were talking about. Having said that, there are some inherent uh, real risks in trading single stocks. So 
that is the counter argument. And we know from Jerry that, for example, he doesn't short single stocks, which uh, is probably a good idea when you've seen some of these short squeezes and what they can do to you. So anyways, I appreciate that uh, is a really important point to uh, to mention. Now, Rich, now we're on to some of your topics and um, you can kind of pick and choose uh, which one you want to dive into, which one you think are the most fun and uh, interesting to talk about i have them in front of me here but i'm gonna let you choose actually i don't want to drive your your narrative today so which one are we going to go for i'm excited well now. look how about we go for this system diversification one uh, that was popular on my twitter feed um yeah so what we're we're, we're doing is we're saying all right, um, we're all familiar with market diversification, but what's the big deal about system diversification? Why is that important? And um, at, uh, my conclusions from my research are that when you deploy system diversification, you find that it naturally breaks the degree of correlation of a single market in a portfolio. It reduces it. So that therefore means you can, uh, with system diversification included, you can expand your market diversification actually wider mm -hmm. than if you trade, for instance, a single system for a single market. So the way to explain this is that um, let's, let's say we look at, um, at any liquid asset such as coffee. And when we look okay, over the long term of coffee, um, we look at the, the, say, the weekly chart or the daily chart or whatever for, you know, the last 30, 40 years. When you eyeball that chart, you could clearly see about five clear outliers in that data. That's all, five in a 30-year history. So what I would do is if I applied, I, I could either um, invest 100% of an allocation in a single system towards coffee, or I might choose to develop five different systems, trend-following systems, and allocate uh, one-fifth of that allocation, or 20% uh, per system, um, across five different systems. So which one would I prefer? So I would always prefer to allocate to more systems than a single system, because the each individual system generates its own unique equity curve or return stream. And when you bundle those five different return streams together as a composite, you find that there are correlation offsets within that ensemble that significantly lowers that correlation that exists in that market in relation to the market in the portfolio. Can you give examples of how these systems can be different? Because we usually just talk about a few we we tend to say there's only a few ways of doing trend following right so so give us some examples if you without giving away the secret sauce of course uh, of how you make how you distinguish between systems being quote unquote different okay so i've talked about these five outliers um, in coffee now if i applied a single system like a, a donkey and breakout system with a, a defined look back on that, I'm only going to capture a segment of each of those outliers. I'm not going to capture the entire outlier. So therefore I need different systems that different target different aspects of that outlier. So I might use a donkey and breakout system with a defined look back, an initial stop and a trailing stop. Now, in each of those 
five systems I'm choosing, every one of them have the golden rules of trend following embedded in them. They must let profits run. So there is no profit target in any of those systems. They're all open-ended. But there is a trail and there is an initial stop. But the entry is the important thing for me. So I might use a donkey and breakout. I might use a Bollinger Band retracement into a trend. I might use a Bollinger Band breakout. I might use a Davis box congestion trader breakout. I might use a standard regression line from a standard deviation channel as a means to determine a breakout. I'm using three or five different entry systems to give me entry diversification. And each of those systems as well has a different initial stop, a different trailing stop in terms of ATR. So I'm getting a broad array of different possible trajectories arising. Some are short-term, medium-term, long-term, a vast array of different um, simple systems that can capture as much of those five outliers in that 30-year history as possible. But each of them characteristically have long lookbacks, so they're stepping out to the medium to the long-term timeframes, but when they're activated, some might be active for a short time, a medium time, and a long time. But you'll notice that they're not on all the time. This is, I, I think, systems, trend-following systems that are, are on all the time. In other words, trading in the market at all times. I think the days of that system are, are getting old in the tooth. I think now we've got to be more selective in when we decide to participate in the market. So um, all of my systems elect to um, trade when when we get a material um, uh, trend emerging, they will start launching sequentially into that trend with different trajectories. But there is certainly a time they're turned off when we're not interested in trading to avoid this noise and mean reversion in the market. That makes a lot of sense, um, meaning that you use, you know, quote unquote, different types of trend following methodologies to to extract different parts uh, of the trend. And it's kind of funny you mentioned the Davis box. I mean, he was a show dancer by background, and yet he was also a very successful trend follower. So it just shows you that uh, it can uh, it can really work for everyone, I would imagine. But anyways, um, I'm just curious because this is not research that I've done, but have you found that there are one or two of these different methodologies, and you might have actually looked at 10 different methodologies because there are a few more than the ones you mentioned, that there are one or two that seem to be better, if I can use that word, in extracting uh, profits from these trends. Because I imagine you apply the same cocktail of systems to all of the markets, right? You don't That's right. have... Okay, good. Yeah, fine. So, but, but do, do you find that there are some of these methodologies that seem to be better than others? Or is it really overall, long-term, it's kind of the same? Yeah, uh, it's a bit like what Jerry talks about. Long-term, they tend to... They, they've all got their strengths and weaknesses. So um, if you're looking over the short-term, you will think that some are outperforming others. However, over the long-term horizon of, say, 30 years, you start seeing that they all have this similar degree of positive expectancy. They all have a similar degree of win rate. They all have a similar degree of average win to average loss relationship. Um, so, But they have their strengths and weaknesses at different times in these outliers. So this, this, is, this is why I do like this system diversification, because if mm -hmm. we are forced to choose one system... Um, 
Normally, when people undertake their back test, they they get a result, and if it's a good result, they'll say, that's the one I'm going to use. Now, that's a bit of an exercise in cherry-picking, using history as a basis to optimise a a particular process that's not going to be repeated in the future, and you likely will fall over as soon as you implement that live in the market. This performance doesn't continue. But if you adopt, say, these five different robust systems that... um, that they haven't been selected by virtue of their profit performance. They've been selected by virtue of their robustness, but there's five Mm -hmm. of them. Um, If you were forced to choose one of those systems, you might be lucky and choose the one with the best risk return um, Mm -hmm. relationship, or you might be unlucky and choose um, the poor performer. That's, that's all something we can say in hindsight. But if you use all five, you're eliminating that hindsight because you're selecting all of them. And what you find, because they all have their strengths and weaknesses, when you compile them together, these strengths and weaknesses either amplify and offset. So they amplify the positive trend signal we want out of that outlier, and they offset the noise that we don't want uh, when we're targeting this outlier. So when you start um, broadening your market diversification across these five different types or forms of trend-following system, you get a significantly superior equity curve over the long haul than a cherry-picked example by being forced to select one. Um, so you're getting this diversification benefit of of systems. And there, there was a good Twitter feed uh, this week where we were looking at levels of diversification like if there were 10 systems to diversify in, it, uh, into, if you chose at random two of those 10 systems um, and you, you plotted the results of each possible combination of those two systems in that selection of 10, you're going to get a highly dispersed grouping of performance based on the performance of those two individual systems. So, uh, you know, system A and system B is one example. System A and system C is another example. System A and system F is another example, selecting two from 10. So you get this dispersed result. Some of them are good results. Some of them are poor results, but it's highly dispersed. But as you increase your system diversification to five out of 10 and then up to 10 out of 10, you find that your grouping of dispersion concentrates towards the higher compound annual growth rate and lower drawdown. So your um, return to risk improves as you increase the level of diversification in your systems. However, and there's a caveat here, you can't go too aggressive with system diversification because this seriously does deteriorate significantly as you increase your levels of diversification in your systems. I'm saying it deteriorates quicker with system diversification than it does with market diversification. So I could, for instance, get maximum benefit from, um, say, five systems, but if I stretch it out to 10, I start getting a a worse result. Um, So there is this marginal benefit of diversification with system diversification. Um, So once I've achieved those five different systems, then I find that instead of being able to only trade 50 markets, I can now trade 150 markets because the correlation between each of those markets in that portfolio has been significantly altered through that system diversification that's embedded in each of those markets, if that makes sense. It allows me to actually widen my market diversification through the inclusion of this moderate form of system diversification. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I I don't disagree with the with the with the idea of having multiple systems. I actually think that that makes a lot of sense, and it's something that um, we did at the uh, at the firm that I was uh, running and founding um, many many moons ago now. But you know, the idea of having different systems doing different uh, things, and I actually talked about it. I think in episode 120 and 121, where I went through the design of that uh, trend-following model. But I will say, and of course, this is also a choice of the markets you trade, but even, and also the time frame for, for those systems, et cetera, et cetera. So it does behave very differently, in my experience. Maybe if you were giving it like very loose pants and, and, and long-term time frames, it would be more similar to... Uh, to the classical long-term trend followers. Uh, in our case, we probably chose something a little bit more dynamic, a little bit shorter term, I guess uh, you could say. And so it has it has performed well, but different, I would say, to some of the managers we you and I write about in our monthly update um, that people should follow, by the way, on the blog post. Um, so anyways, but it is interesting. I do think, I mean, and of course, as trend followers, we embrace diversification in general so why not embrace system diversification as well something we do as well where you know at done uh, so um so yeah good stuff um we've got a few minutes left uh, rich do you want to dive into one or one or so more of the topics um, um there's something about the weak edge of trend following i don't know about whether that's the one you want. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. Or, you know, otherwise, we're going to start getting into this topic of volatility targeting as we head down the oh, page. So no, we, we want to get away from there that. anymore. Yeah, we don't <laughs> want to get away from that. Yeah. Ooh. So, yes, this weak edge of trend following, it's coming up a lot lately. I, I noticed Jerry's mentioned it and um, and um, in, in this podcast with you the, um, a few weeks ago. And uh, by the way, let me interrupt you there. Let me yeah. just interrupt you. So, you know, on the last conversation I had with Jerry, he said that his wish was to end up with positive rolling 12-month returns um, of his strategy, ideally 100%. Knowing what trend following is, it's not something that I would think we would be very good at because of the nature of how our systems are structured um, and the markets we trade and the fact that we embrace kind of volatility and loose pants and all of that stuff. Now, of course, if you zoom out, say, oh yeah, I want rolling 10 years to be positive. Yeah, we can deliver that for sure. Maybe five years, potentially. One year, I'm not so sure. And I was a little bit thinking about it after my conversation with him, thinking, well, if that's what you want to achieve maybe you have to compromise some of the other things that we stand for in trend following to achieve that because you're trying to manage the smoothness of the returns, which is not something we normally <laughs> embrace. So what are your thoughts since you brought it up? Uh, I, I noticed that comment that Jerry made, and I was thinking to myself, gosh, I, I looked over my track record, and I certainly have uh, years of poor performance and uh you know i was thinking oh i was thinking may maybe jerry lives in a different world where his level of diversification he achieves is so extreme that it, it can actually generate that type of performance maybe. maybe that's the case and and my gut feel tells me that jerry's on to something here because he's on this quest to increase diversification i think he's now up to 200 markets he was saying he mentioned day. that yeah yeah, yeah, And I think there is no limit to how he's prepared to stretch, and I think good on him because I think when we this, – this, this, one of my concerns is that um, 
When we make statements regarding how much diversification is enough, we tend to put a single hat on, which is um, we might make a statement that there is a certain level of diversification that achieves benefits, but thereafter the marginal benefit of diversification decreases. Now, a statement mm. like that to me is a bit of a red rag to a bull when dealing with the edge that we're targeting, these outliers, because... I think there are additional benefits of diversification we receive from from diversification into outliers as opposed to diversification into more convergent signals. So I think Jerry's onto something here in his quest to continuously increase his diversification because in reality, each one of his systems might only take 20, 30 trades over a 30-year time frame. So he needs this diversification to increase his sample size. And so he's diversifying widely across his markets. So maybe he exists in this world where he's finding in his research that the more he diversifies, the more he is finding that there is never a negative year. Um, maybe that's the case with Jerry. I don't find it in my world at the moment because I'm certainly not at Jerry's level of diversification. I doubt I'll ever get there, but the quest is on as well. I'm trying to follow him down that path. But yeah, uh, Niels, um, it was an interesting statement. I can see the quip you made regarding his possible volatility targeting um, that was in that statement, the smooth returns. <laughs> well, it's not, you know, I definitely know he would never try and do it through volatility targeting, that's for sure. But I was kind of thinking, is that just something where we're stretching our limits a little bit too much, meaning we can't have our cake and eat it too, meaning we're looking for these outliers, we 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 embrace volatility, we... Um, we, you know, we realize our volatility on a daily basis, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and we want to have this kind of simple approach to investing, um, you know, one entry, one exit, um, and, and one, one stop. But then on top of that, we say, well, by the way, I really like to make money on a rolling 12 month basis all the time. And I'm thinking, no, that's, I don't think you can. If yeah, I tend to think it, it, all it the flies other. in the face of trend following, doesn't it, really? Because in our trend following world, well, we I'm can never guarantee when these yeah. trends occur. We never know when these things are going to occur. And we might go through many years of a mean reverting environment or, a, a, a you know, ones where there are a few trends uh, within that many-year context. And one of the things we don't want to do is, is force an outcome into uh, – trading methodology. In other words, when markets are not trending, we do not want to find that we um, perform well because that's telling us that there's something wrong in our system design. The only time we want to perform well is when trends are there. So if we find that our system right. is outperforming when the market is not trending, we're not tra trading a trend-following system. We're trading probably a convergent system or a random system. Who knows? But it's not a trend-following system. And my, my thoughts are that we can never know which year these environments are going to shift or change. I believe that there are these things called complex adaptive markets and we get these periods of transition, but we never know when or where. It might be two years apart, one year apart, 10 years apart, 20 years apart. I don't know any of that. But I do know that um, these events do occur much more frequently than what might be um, considered by traditional statistical methods. 
So yeah. yeah. So I mean, my 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 conclusion is that I think it's 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 fair to expect maybe a seventy percent rolling twelve month positive uh, returns uh, for a trend following system. If you go out to three years, maybe you can get it to eighty percent. If you go up to five years, maybe ninety percent. And if you go to ten years, I would say most of the brand names probably delivered a positive return on a rolling ten year basis. That would be my guess. But before I forget something, I completely missed in my. I should have made this the the headline in my introduction, uh, Rich. Um, I don't know if you watch CNBC Squawk Box. I don't do that, frankly. But I picked up a headline uh, on Twitter saying um, that Paul Tudor Jones, the legend, the $44 billion hedge fund manager, was out saying, and, and I quote something along the lines, because he was... It's basically explaining how difficult an environment we're in right now with all sorts of cross currents in the markets. And you and, and to quote him again, just from memory, um, that definitely you don't want to own stocks, you don't want to own bonds that we've already talked about earlier. But then he said, when pushed in terms of, so what should you do? He says something along the lines, well, if you put a gun to my head and I have to choose one strategy, I would choose a simple trend-following strategy. It's not very popular at the moment, but I think it's going to do well for the next five or 10 years. And I just said, yoo-hoo. Yeah. You know, finally we have someone out there. Exactly. Finally have someone out there who's willing to put his very good reputation on the line and to support our little cause. So, uh, So if you're listening, Paul, which unfortunately I don't think you are, but maybe someone who knows Paul is listening, come on the show and talk some more about why you think trend following is the right strategy for the next five or ten years. Um, We would love to to dive into that. Wouldn't that be a Um, show? That would be a great show. Yeah. That would be fun, right? Um, Okay, anything else you want? I kind of interrupted you in the middle of your uh, week edge. Look, I, I've sort of almost – well, with with this week edge, it's, it's interesting how we're getting a lot of comments regarding this this week edge, and I totally agree with them. Uh, certainly from my research, I realise that um, we don't need a strong edge for our models to work very well in the long term. And <clears throat> I, I actually believe that in the long term, there is no system that has a strong edge. I think they are all weak, even convergent models. However – I believe that convergent models have a strong signal over a particular regime, but then that that um, that edge dissipates significantly when the regime shifts, which is different to our trend-following models, which are regime-independent as opposed to regime-dependent. So we're looking for these outliers or when these transition events between regimes occur. Um, and so uh, we have this weak edge. And, you know, a lot of people talk about 30 to 40 percent is our win rate but I say well, hold on that's even worse than that guys it's actually five percent of our trades that matter and uh, to me I yeah, I'm not sure I quite disagree yeah, you, you I, I might disagree. I'm sure I quite agree with that I might disagree on that one because but I do think all remember win I'm, rates I'm there on that spectrum yeah. of the I'm on that I know you're right out there you're, spectrum of the outlier oh yes. so yeah but, but exactly. when I look at my trade distribution I realize that it is these five percent that that yeah. uh you know, they, they do contribute, move the needle they the move most. the needle. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so, and that, that's what I'm meaning in relation to this weak edge, because that 95% effectively is random to me, at least to me. Um, it could be yeah. wins, losses, but they're all small. It's just random perturbations. So, 
Yeah, so I, I just like these comments starting to suggest that there is actually only a weak edge because I think we underestimate the degree of randomness and the degree of efficiency in the market, which is always there. And I think uh, traders need to understand that. Um, and they need to also understand that they could be trading a system that they believe um, has an edge and they can be trading it for 500, 600, 700 trades and that could just be the result of a random outcome. It's really only sure. when you get to 5,000, 10,000 trades, et cetera, you start seeing the, the, the qualities of an edge actually translate into performance. Yeah, no, that's definitely a fair point. All righty, um, let's, I mean, it's only um, really through Wednesday uh, we have any data this week in terms of performance, so I'm not going to go into too much details other than to say that um, both the Beta 50 index, the Sockchain CTA index, and the Sockchain Trend index, they're all up about 25 to 50 basis points, adding to obviously a, a strong year so far. The Sockchain Short-Term Traders Index is flat so far in um, in May, uh, but these numbers do not include the washout we had yesterday, uh, which I actually think was good for trend followers, um, but I have no idea what short-term managers did. My trend barometer is finishing yesterday at 59, so that's still strong, confirming the performance. And of course, as everybody probably knows, uh, we have equities down so far this month. MSCI World, um, the, uh, and I think maybe the S&P was flat for the month as of yesterday, but it looks like it's down now uh, when I look at the screens. And of course, the World Government Bond Index is definitely uh, down for the month already. If you like these conversations, I would certainly invite you to uh, follow the podcast and leave a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. Um, and do share them with your friends and colleagues. Um, hopefully, there's something for everyone. Maybe Systematic Investor Series is not for everyone. Maybe they're more into global macro. Maybe they're more into volatility. That is exactly why we're trying to um, basically uh, provide different types of content. If you like it, um, please do help us grow and spread the good word. Uh, Richard, as always, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and I know it's late where you are now, so I appreciate that. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Uh, Mark is back next week, um, and um, I'm sure we're going to tackle a few important and interesting themes. He's always coming up like Riches with some interesting talk talking points. If you do have some questions for Mark, um, I invite you to email them to me at info at toptradersonplot.com. Then we'll deal with that. From Rich and me, thank you ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.